Uh, back in California, the guitarist from our old church was a guy named Dwight. And before becoming a Christian, Dwight worked in the adult film distribution business and lived the life of alcoholism and drug abuse. And one night, uh, living that life, he got drunk and took a swing at a law enforcement officer and ended up doing a year in prison for it. And in prison, he found Jesus, or should I say, Jesus found him. And he started attending our church immediately upon release. So he did a year in prison, and he got out, and he was renting a small room right behind where our church was, and he started attending the week he was released. And his conversion to Christianity may have been the most authentic example of genuine faith and repentance I had ever seen. We soon became best friends and hiking buddies. And my first backpacking trip was in 2007 with Dwight. And we headed up to the eastern Sierras and on the backside of Yosemite in a place called the Ansel Adams Wilderness. Uh, Maybe I've talked about the Ansel Adams Wilderness before. Ansel Adams was a photographer who took Um, these iconic black and white photos of the high Sierras in Yosemite. And there was an area of wilderness that was named after him. And the Ansel Adams Wilderness has hundreds of lakes from the perennial snowmelt from all of these 12 and 13,000 foot peaks. So the western Sierra is more lush, but the eastern Sierra on the backside doesn't get as much rain, but it's higher up. And the views are spectacular, and there are multiple 12, 13, and even 14,000-foot peaks. Mount Whitney is almost 15,000 feet. And so the lakes are filled with, um, they're filled with trout. So we, we brought our fishing rods, and these were cheap, compact, $20 rods you, know, you can stuff in your backpack. And we hiked along the trail, and we'd stop at every lake until, and, and we'd fish. So we'd hike along, and we'd pull out our little cheap back, you know, backpack fishing rods, and we'd, we'd fish a little bit, and then we'd hike some more. And it was just great until we came to Garnet Lake, which was a really large lake and um, a popular place for fly fishermen uh, who had to hike in. And when we got there, there were some fly fishermen who were already there. And compared to these guys, we were total amateurs. Uh, We were just a couple of hot and sweaty ragtag hikers um, with even, you know, cheaper fishing skills and equipment. And um, we asked one of the fancy fly fishermen if we could drop our lines in close by, and he said yes. And, um, but he told us he had no luck yet. And Dwight was so excited to be living this new life as a Christian um, that everything was beautiful to him. He would stop and kneel by a leaf. In fact, it irritated me. He was, he was, I mean, he was just so, uh, it was just, the world was brand new. It was like he had just landed here from another planet. And so, you know, he had no hang-ups at all about dropping in his line next to the guy with the fancy fly you know, fishing rod, and he had the vest and the hat and the whole nine yards, and, you know, Dwight was in a pair of basketball shorts, you know, and a cheap fishing rod, and he threw his, his rod in, 
um, into this area of the lake. He squatted down on this muddy patch, and immediately he started catching fish. And the look of jubilation on his face uh, dumbfounded the other fishermen who hadn't caught a thing all day. And I was dumbfounded because I wasn't catching fish either. And one of these guys who looked like, you know, right out of, like, you know, Field and Stream magazine asked Dwight, can I come fish next to you? And Dwight said, sure, come on. And um, like I said, I was also perplexed because I couldn't catch any fish either. And, um, and secondly, it was as if Dwight's rod, his fishing rod, was that day it was magical. The whole weekend he caught ten times the fish I did. Now Dwight could have just been a natural fisherman. But looking back in retrospect, it felt like that weekend of incredible fishing for Dwight was a gift from God. Here was a man who was saved out of the filth and darkness of the world, who God came to in a prison cell, and now his entire life oozed out with the gratitude of God's grace. It was as if even the fish wanted to be close to Dwight because of how much he radiated with God's glory. Dwight was also a great evangelist, And wherever we would go, within minutes, he would strike up a conversation about Jesus. It was like the magic that was on his fishing rod was that day was also in his heart, and people were drawn to him. Someone once said, the more worthless a man, the more fish he can catch. And I think what that means is that a man that thinks too much of himself won't get dirty enough or be patient long enough to wait for the fish to bite. Or maybe it means that, maybe it's the, that statement is the recognition that proud men are outdone by humble men. Well, in Luke chapter 5, here in our passage this morning, Jesus encounters a group of humble fishermen who he'll later use in his mission to redeem the world. And in verse 1, look at verse 1, it says, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is another way of saying the lake of Galilee. They have different names, but it's the same lake. And he saw two boats, Jesus that is, by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So Jesus is pressed by the crowds, who want to hear his preaching, they want to hear him preach the word. And remember, we've been moving through Luke, and we've noted that Jesus was an amazing preacher, and people wanted to hear him preach. And he sees the local fishermen's boats empty because they fished all night. Typically, fishermen fished in the, in, in the nighttime, uh, and that was, that's the best time to catch fish. And so the disciples actually... At this point, they're not disciples. At this point, uh, Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John don't really even know who Jesus is. The only one who may be familiar with Jesus is Peter because, remember last week, Jesus had just healed Peter's mother-in-law. So there is some acquaintance, but fishermen, they fished all night, 
and um, they typically worked the graveyard shift. And by the time Jesus comes on them, upon them, their boats are docked, and they've been cleaning, and they've been mending their nets. Now these are huge and heavy nets, and cleaning them is backbreaking work. So no doubt they're tired and they're hungry and they're exhausted and Jesus comes on the scene and they probably have stopped all they're doing and they're listening to this guy, Jesus, who's this amazing preacher who has this new reputation for performing miracles and healing people. And it says that Jesus, in verse 3, gets into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. Now, if you know anything about kind of the amphitheater effect, there are certain places on the shore of the Galilee where the land rises up steeply. And so if you have several dozen people or a hundred or several hundred people, uh, 20 or 30 feet in off the shore, and Jesus is on a boat in the water, maybe 10, 15, 20 feet out, there's this natural amphitheater effect, and Jesus doesn't even have to raise his voice for possibly upwards of 500 to 1,000 people to hear him perfectly. Jesus understood these things because, of course, as nature's creator, he understands the way the world works, and he understands how to get his message across. And Jesus preached a while, and then he does something that probably really irritated Peter. It says, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon... Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Now, Jesus is the son of a carpenter, and he's telling a fisherman where to toss his net. And this is a demanding request, to say the least, to someone who's been up all night fishing and hasn't caught anything at all. Have you ever had someone who knows nothing about your trade or area of expertise, try to give you advice. You know, imagine walking up to Stephen Curry right now. You know, he's like the hottest thing in the NBA and saying, you know, Stephen, I don't know anything about basketball. I don't play basketball, but I want to give you some advice about how to, you know, how to get another ring. It's quite possible that everything after the words advice about basketball would be completely tuned out by Stephen Curry. Um, it, would, it wouldn't even register. It wouldn't, wouldn't, it'd be completely ignored. And Simon's irritation is pretty obvious. In verse 5, he says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But Simon also knows that Jesus is no ordinary man. He says, but at your word... I will let down the nets. And I can, I can see in my mind's eye Peter saying to Andrew and James and John, come on, guys. You know, Lord, we've toiled all night, um, and we've taken nothing, but at your word, because you've requested it, we'll do it. You know, and he walks off you know, with, a, you know, with this disheveled look on his face to oblige the master. And by telling us that Peter and the others labored all night without catching any fish, Luke is setting us up for the greatness 
of what Jesus is about to do. Now those of you who fish may know that 100% of the fish are found in 5 to 10% of the water. Now they have these devices on your trolling boat that shows where the fish are, but those things didn't exist 2,000 years ago. Um, and the good fishermen, they know this fact, great fishermen know where to find, you know, that 5 or 10% of water. And Jesus knew the Galilee's mossy mysteries. Verse 6 tells us, they let down their nets and they took in so many fish that the nets couldn't hold them all, and the nets started to fray. And it was so large a catch that the others came in another boat to help, and we're talking about two, possibly 30-foot-long fishing boats that are able to accommodate half a dozen or more fishermen, and both of these boats, upwards of 30 feet long each, are so overwhelmed with so many fish that they both begin to be pulled down and sink. Remember the movie Jaws when they, they, you know, they hook the big shark and they're in this big fishing boat, dilapidated but big, you know, and the motor's chugging along and black smoke is coming out of the, you know, the smokestack and uh, the shark is so big that the boat starts to go backwards and the back of the boat starts to dip down into the water. Well, that's how many fish they caught They're just overwhelmed by the great catch. And it affects Peter so powerfully that one commentator referred to it as a sublime trauma fell on Peter's soul. Because when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Peter is so struck by the divine presence that he begins to wrench in moral agony because he knows he's a sinner. He recognizes that he is in the the presence of divine power. And this causes him to reflect inwardly on his own moral state. And he says, leave me, for I'm a sinful man. And this is in many ways a proper response. We remember Isaiah 6 when uh, King Uzziah died. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And I saw the Lord in his temple And the train of his glory filled the temple. And he said, woe unto me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And dwell in the midst of an unclean people. And later on, John the Revelator in John 1.17, when he saw Jesus, he said, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. When the reality of Jesus' holiness and power settles in the heart of a person the proper response, or there is a proper sense 
of unworthiness that takes over. And these are the people who Jesus is pleased to use. God is pleased to use those that recognize their own sense of unworthiness compared to God. These are the people that God is pleased to use. Humble men and women who recognize their sin and unworthiness, who God is pleased to use as vessels for his glory, like my friend Dwight. When Peter said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Jesus responds to Simon in verse 10 by saying, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when we read this, these verses, we can recognize that all of this seems to be one big object lesson that Jesus uses to illustrate the fact that they are now to become fishers of men. Jesus is not boosting their enterprise of, you know, their, their fish business. You know, he's not giving them a boost to their, uh, you know, to their profits. He's making an object lesson out of the entire event to demonstrate that from now on, they're going to be catching people. They're now to catch men alive for the kingdom of God. And the profound acknowledgement that Jesus um, helped them catch all of those fish, even though their own human expertise failed, is the metaphor for how souls are won. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And this is why we preach and why we witness and share our testimony and faith in Christ. It's not because we're so skilled at evangelism, but because God is at work in the hearts of people, drawing people to himself through our preaching. God is the one who saves. This is why we can preach. This is why we can be encouraged to do the work of evangelism. Because when the electing love of God through the gospel of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is at work, it doesn't matter if people don't want to get caught, they're coming in the net. Just like me and just like you. You may think, well, I was searching for God. Often what people are searching for are answers, our purpose is meaning, but none of us really were searching for God. And when we did start to search for God, it's because God was actually drawing us to himself. In fact, Jesus said this. He says, no man comes to the Father but by me. But unless he's drawn. No man comes to the Father except through me and unless the Father draws him. So how do we become Fishers of men, fishers of people, fishers of men and women. Well, we need to know that God uses the human means of preaching, sharing our faith, and gospel witness. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
Some of you may ask, well, if God is the one that saves people, why even preach? Because that is the God-ordained means of converting sinners. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And how can they hear except there be a preacher or someone to speak with their mouth and proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? So first we need to know that, um, if I can use a, a fishing metaphor, that there are tools to our trade. Just as Peter and Andrew and James and John had tools to the trade of being fishermen, and today professional fishermen have tools to their trade, but for those of us fishers of people, there are also tools to our trade. Um, we could say that the bait is the gospel and the tackle is the cross. But we need a good lure. And that's where our apologetic comes in. And our apologetic is a compelling worldview that fills life and creation with meaning and purpose. See, if there's one thing Darwinian evolution cannot account for, it's the question of meaning, right? Since Charles Darwin, Darwin in, the, in the 1800s, evolution has attempted to account for the entire cosmos, but it, it can't account, certainly, for meaning, and so godless worldviews ultimately and eventually come at the end of the road where there is no meaning, and there is void and emptiness. And every one of us encounters that. And so a good apologetic fills life and creation with meaning and purpose. The hook is the atonement, which is the only grounds to be justified in God's sight. And the barb in the hook, we could say, is the resurrection. Now that's what should be in every believer's tackle box, but... You can have the best bait and tackle without access to a water hole. Maybe I'm pushing the metaphor too far. I don't know. But just go with me here, okay? Um, we, need, we need access to the watering hole, which is to say we need opportunities for evangelism. Now, you might be wondering, well, where can that happen? And I just want to affirm and encourage you that it happens when you walk out of your front door every day. You say, well, that might say, well, that's really broad. What do you mean by that? Well, there are several ways that we can embody evangelism, that we can be fishers of men and women. But the first thing I want to say is that words are necessary. That for us to be fishers of people, words are necessary. Some people say, you've heard it said, you know, words are cheap, or actions speak louder than words. Just this week I saw a bumper sticker that said, deeds over creeds. And you can, you, can, you can understand what all of those things are trying to say. All of those things are trying to say that you can say something with your lips, but if there aren't actions to back it up, it doesn't mean anything. But one writer points out that the idea of preach the gospel, use words if necessary. You know, you've heard that before. It goes hand in hand, he says, with a postmodern assumption that words are finally empty of meaning. 
It subtly denigrates the high value of the prophets Jesus and Paul put on preaching. Of course, we want our actions to match our words as much as possible, but the gospel is a message, news about an event and a person upon which the history of the planet turns, which means the gospel ultimately must be proclaimed with words. So what's the takeaway? The disciples became fishers of men because they proclaimed with their mouth the message of God's grace in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what if we're not afforded opportunities to have a conversation? Is there any way, any other way to bait hungry sinners? Yeah, there are several ways. And the first is being good neighbors. Now, that might seem simplistic, but the most obvious field, mission field, every one of you have is right where you live. And this is maybe perhaps the most challenging because it, it encroaches on your comfort, on my comfort, right? Because home is the one place that we want to have a refuge to escape from the noise and chaos of the world. But your own neighborhood is actually a great mission field. You have neighbors and people in close proximity to you that are a natural mission field. And to maximize this evangelistic opportunity, um, you have to be missionally minded. You know, missionaries understand that to reach people in foreign countries, they have to be sensitive to local customs, the vernacular, cultural sensibilities and traditions. And to reach your neighbors, you have to get to know them and learn about them and find out what motivates them and where the empty spots are, where they're starving and hungry and malnourished so you can offer them the bread of life to satisfy their souls. It may sound, you know, silly, but even something like pulling in your neighbor's trash cans or having them over for dinner, you know, I don't mean as simply just a bait and switch So, you know, the minute they show up, you can blast them with the gospel. In fact, if there's any group of people you can take your time with and build relationships with, it's your neighbors because they're not going anywhere. They live next to you. You can build on those relationships. The stranger in the airport, not so much. The second place we can be fishers of people is seeing your vocation as ministry. You know, one way to be missional is to stop seeing work as just a means to make money. You know, you may not really like your job or be less than excited about going to work, but um, the gifts God has given you are for the life of the world. Uh, Martin Luther said, In our vocations, we do the works which affect the well-being of others, for so God has made all vocations. Through this work and man's vocation, God's creative work goes forward, and that creative work is love, a profusion of good gifts. The world functions when people work faithfully at their vocation and calling. 
Now, this may seem distant. How is this preaching the gospel? Actually, it is a way to embody evangelism because as we use the gifts God has given us in our different callings and jobs and vocations, we're doing a service for the world that God has intended. And not only that, we're undergirding our testimony by being faithful at what we do. Right? The slacker destroys his testimony because the minute you say, oh, I'm a Christian, they walk away and they think, well, that guy takes hour-long breaks, you know? I always have to pull up, you know, the slack for this person. But working diligently in our jobs glorify, glorifies God and it also undergirds our testimony. And then third, redeeming relationships is another way that we can be fishers of people. Your spouse, your brother, your sister, your mother, your friends, your co-workers, the doctors, the dentist, aren't just people in your life. They're people who need the gospel as much as you need the gospel. No matter how much they might act like they're fine just the way they are. You can't be deceived by people's attitudes on the surface, right? Because everyone, especially if you look at social media, you know, there have been studies about how, you know, people with these amazing social media accounts are like, you know, suffering from depression. Because there's an image that we all want the world to see when they look at us, and you can't let that throw you off your course. Because on the surface, everyone's fine. On the surface, everyone is fine just the way they are. But it's simply not true because you can't be fine without Jesus. So honoring people as image bearers by pouring into them truth and giving yourselves to them as much as you can. You know, God used someone to pour into you, to challenge you, to minister to you, and he wants you, he wants us to do the same for others. All of your gifts are given to help others find their way into the kingdom and help them stay in the kingdom of God. And God uses human agency to influence others. And this may be the single most neglected aspect about what we're called to do as believers. God has given every one of us influence. Have you ever seen your influence affect someone? A few months back, I told the story about when I worked in the grocery store in my early 20s and started drinking a gallon and a half of water a day and lost like 40 pounds. I, was, I had gotten pretty heavy in that. And... Um, and I lost 40 pounds in the course of a couple of months, and everybody saw it. And I had a gallon of water everywhere I walked around with me. And, I was, and people would say, what are you doing? And I would look at the water, and I would tell them the story. And, and after a while, everywhere in the grocery store, there'd be gallons of water just, you know, on check stands, on displays, on, you know, they were, just, they were all over the place. They couldn't keep water on the shelf because everybody was blowing through the water. I just, I was influencing people. I wasn't even trying to because I was excited about something. And this might be the toughest part of our message this morning, which is we may not be very excited about sharing our faith because we may not be, we may not, we just may not be very excited about Jesus. Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. 
Maybe we've lost that zeal, that power, that, you know, electrifying, you know, exuberance that we first had when we met Jesus. Like Dwight. Dwight's still alive, by the way. You know, he's, I, I'm talking about him in the past tense. I'll probably call him up and say, hey, listen to this sermon. I mentioned your name half a dozen times. But when you're excited, you don't even have to try. You don't have to fabricate opportunities for evangelism. It just happens. When the gospel is living in you, when Jesus is beautiful to you, when the fact that he's delivered you from the domain of darkness is the single greatest fact and event of your life, you almost don't even have to try. It just comes oozing out of you. The gratitude for God's grace just comes oozing out of you. So we need to recognize our influence to disciple and counsel others. Every encounter with an unbeliever is an opportunity for discipleship, even if it doesn't involve a full-blown presentation of the gospel. And then fourth, and finally, ways that we can be fishers of men is simply copying Jesus. Now, some people have, uh, there are debates by theologians about whether uh, the Bible's model of discipleship and following Christ uh, is actually an imitation of Jesus. And I just want to put that to rest and say we are absolutely called to imitate Jesus. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 says, If anyone is in him, they must walk as this one walked. And one of the things Jesus did when he encountered people is he didn't always necessarily give them a full-blown presentation of the gospel. He simply spoke an appropriate aspect of truth to that person. It doesn't mean he cut himself off from ever having another conversation, but what it means is, is that, you know, God's truth is powerful. The woman at the well, right? Uh, the rich young ruler, he spoke appropriate aspects of truth. And we ought not, this is the last thing I'll say, we ought not to fear rejection. You know, rejection is a small price to pay. We live in a culture and a society where so much is uh, propped up to help us feel good. And rejection is just not something most of us want to experience or are used to experiencing. But I want to tell you something about how uh, often how God uses your testimony, your words, you sharing the gospel to convert sinners. It often doesn't happen in front of you. We feel that we failed if we haven't hook, line, and sinker right there and then, you know, reeled somebody in, and in front of our eyes, they accept Jesus. And I want to say that's rarely the way it works. What often happens is people who are most vehement in rejecting what you're saying in front of you the Bible says, and we quoted that passage last week, the word of God cannot return to him void. Which means when you proclaim the truth, people may get upset about it, they may, you know, they may be angry at you, but it works on them. And then down the road, six months, a year, two years, someone else comes along 
and waters that seed. And then now that seed has begun to germinate, even if they don't even acknowledge or realize it. And many of you have very similar testimonies that by the time you actually became a Christian, you had heard the gospel in bits and pieces by other people who at first you rejected. And maybe that one person, maybe that first person who shared the gospel with you, to this day doesn't know you actually became a Christian. Maybe it was in high school or in college. Because when you actually received the gospel, it was five or ten years later. And so I want to say this, that evangelism and being fishers of men and women is not only or necessarily just about filling up our church. We're trying to fill the kingdom. And that sometimes happens by people coming and hearing the word preached, your, your testimony shared, coming into church immediately, and sometimes it happens five or ten years down the road. But this is what God calls us to. And in our lives, where we're mostly comfortable, and that's not a bad thing, God expects us to take this wonderful thing of salvation that he's given us and, and let it shine in us. Shine and radiate outward. If we would obey Jesus' direction to fish for people faithfully, we too might experience a full net. Do you see yourself as a fisher of people? Let's pray. Lord God, we know that um, what is recorded here in the book of Luke is not simply an object lesson or a metaphor. Jesus really did those things. He really filled the nets of professional fishermen, performing miracles and demonstrating his power as the divine son of God. And Father, we pray now that you would loose us from any complacency that we might have that causes us to forget that Jesus is the divine son of God who has broken into our lives and calls us to radical discipleship. Calls us to follow Causes, calls us to obey and to proclaim. And for many of us, this seems like an impossible task, but help us to know that this is not our work, that you are the one that converts people. You are the one that saves people, and you just ask us to participate in it. Help us, O oh God, to be zealous for participating in the awesome and wonderful mission of the gospel of Jesus to the world, which seems at times so dark and so cold, but Lord, help us to be the light. Lord, we thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.